This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Law School Show. I'm your host, Lucy, and our guest today is Adam Goldenberg, who's an associate litigation lawyer at McCarthy Tatro in their Toronto office. Adam's practice focuses mainly on commercial and public law disputes and appeals. He's argued before judges in all levels of court in Ontario, as well as various other provincial and federal courts, and he's acted as counsel in 16 appeals before the Supreme Court of Canada. Prior to becoming a litigation lawyer, Adam studied law at Yale after studying his undergrad at Harvard, and he was a law clerk to Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin at the Supreme Court of Canada and various other notable justices at the Court of Appeal for Ontario. Outside of his practice, Adam has taught appellate practice and procedure at the University of Toronto as an adjunct professor and has lectured at various law schools across Canada on constitutional and administrative law, including a guest lecture for one of my classes. Most recently, Adams has co-authored a book on Canadian emergency law with Eric Block, a litigation partner at McCarthy, and he hosts McCarthy's award-winning podcast, Law in the Time of COVID-19. This episode is split into two parts. In this first part, we focus on Adams' experience and motivations for going into litigation, and in the second part, we scratch the surface a little bit on Canadian emergency law. Hello, Adam, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Lucy. It's good to be with you. So I'll start with the classic. How did you get into law and how did you specifically get into litigation? Well, it is arguably foreordained that I was going to be a litigator. I was a high school debater. I did theater in high school. I have all the right character flaws to be a litigator. I love the sound of my own voice. I'm competitive. I like to argue about things. And I've been doing it in various ways for my entire life, since even before my adult life. So I think being a lawyer and being a litigator was always something that I contemplated. I don't have many lawyers in my family. I have one aunt who is a non-practicing lawyer and a great aunt who was a judge, but, but had retired by the time I knew what that was. Uh, but I knew that there was a profession out there that would allow me to harness some of the, the talents that I'd cultivated and the different activities that I found enjoyable and that would that would offer me subject matter that I would find interesting. And I was lucky that as I went through my education and then into law school, that those expectations were confirmed. And now that I've been in practice for six years or five years, however long it's been since I graduated law school, uh, you start losing track after a while, and I guess I'm getting to that point, uh, it, it has confirmed over and over again, or been confirmed over and over again, that this is the career for me. Um, interesting that you bring up your theater background because um, I have an arts background as well. I did music performance. I have a degree in opera. So I always thought litigation was the route for me, but I'm not too sure about that. But we'll see. Well, it doesn't, it, it doesn't always map on directly, but, uh, but I knew that, that the part of me that enjoyed putting, you know, communicating with an audience, which is what I always enjoyed about theater was something that I knew I would find in in this line of work and that I have found in this line of work. Although there are some litigators who are more theatrical than others, and I'm not especially theatrical in my in my courtroom manner. I actually don't think it's that effective. But just having an, ha having the training and, and the experience and, and finding satisfaction in in delivering content 
with an audience in mind and, and being mindful of how words that are coming out of your mouth are being received by people who don't really know you or, or don't have any vested interest in, in what you're saying. That's the same skill set that, that we use as litigators in order to, to argue our cases. The one other thing I'll point out is I, I was very fortunate in that out of, right out of law school, I got to court at the Court of Appeal for Ontario, which is an exceptional opportunity. And if there are any law students out there who have thought about clerking, my advice is do it, do it, do it, whether you want to be a litigator or not. For me, knowing that I was probably going to end up doing litigation, it was especially helpful and especially valuable to spend a year, I actually ended up doing two clerkships, so two years, listening to good lawyers and not so good lawyers argue their cases in front of judges. And being in that courtroom, there's a feeling that you get, I think, if you're if you're destined to be a litigator. This is going to, this, well, it already sounds hokey. It's only going to sound more hokey. But there's a feeling that you get when you walk into a courtroom and you think, this is where I'm supposed to be. And I had that feeling in an acute way when I first had a summer job in law school where I was assisting lawyers in the in the government of Nunavut. I, I spent a summer in Iqaluit. And I remember the first time I ever attended the Nunavut Court of Justice thinking, wow, this is a courtroom. This is this is for me. And then that was just compounded over and over again in each summer that I had in law school. And then when I clerked, having a whole year of that really made it very obvious to me that, that this was the profession I wanted to join. And, and, and we're lucky also, and I was lucky, to have mentors when I was clerking who had been litigators in Toronto, civil litigators, doing the same job that I am now doing for many, many years before they were appointed to the bench and who imbued in me a respect for the traditions of the, the litigation profession, the barrister's profession that we have distinctly in Ontario, which is, of course, part of a broader tradition that goes back to the ends of court in England and, and that has been replicated in various ways in the United States and elsewhere in Canada. But I, I derived great value from knowing that I was part of something much bigger than myself and that there, there were traditions that I was going to be in a position to to carry forward and to change as, as time went on. And I, I derived great satisfaction from that, from honing a craft that has been honed by many others before me and from participating in a, in a somewhat over-ritualized, I'll confess, uh, practice of a profession that long predates my own life and that I hope will last beyond my, my own career. Very beautifully put. Um, and this actually brings us really nicely to our next question, which is, what was your understanding of litigation before you actually became a litigation lawyer? And how does that compare with your experiences now? So I, I'll go back a little bit further beyond before I became a litigation lawyer, because remember, I'd spent a year clerking before I first got hired to be a litigator. So I had a pretty good sense of at least what the finished product looked like at the appellate level by the time I got to be a, a litigator for real. And I, I actually spent my summer working at a litigation firm. And so I had some exposure to courtroom work, not just appeals, you know, motions and, and that sort of thing. And I, of course, like most people in law school, have had seen my fair share of movies and television shows involving lawyers. So I had all of those stereotypes floating around in my head. The fact of the matter is that it's impossible to know what the job of being a litigator is actually like until you've done it. And I think that that is true of any area of the law, and it's an unfortunate reality with any area of our profession. You know, we expect law students to have a sense of what kind of lawyer they want to be before they really can be in a position to know what the, the job involves. Unless you have a parent who was a lawyer in the particular kind of practice that you intend to go into, and fortunately, I'd say, this is no disrespect to 
to lawyers or to my future children. Fortunately, we're a diverse enough profession that not everybody does, and, and decreasingly, uh, many people do. The, the idea of what actually occupies the time of a litigator, for example, like I am, is a bit of a mystery, and you won't know until you actually get into articling or get into a summer position or at the very least spend a lot of time talking to people who are actually doing the job. And that's that makes it tough as a law student to know exactly what you have to get into. So in my case, I knew what the finished product looked like. Generally speaking, I had spent time in courtrooms. I knew that that's where I wanted to end up. What I didn't fully appreciate is what happens behind the scenes in the years that it takes in some cases to get a matter into a courtroom for the first time. And I'd never, you know, until I was a summer student, I'd never attended an examination for discovery and known what those look like, which in many cases that don't go to trial, that's a big part of the litigation process that takes up a significant amount of a litigator's time. How to work with the documents that are involved in a particular case and build a narrative that will be compelling to the trier of fact, whether it's a judge or a jury, and that will hold up on appeal if you're able to succeed at first instance. These sorts of, of undertakings, which is a, a term that means something in litigation, so I, I use it in the broader sense, uh, are things that, that I really didn't have any clear understanding of, of what I would be doing until I actually got into doing it. And that's a little bit scary. There was a chance that I could have, you know, gone in and thought, you know, the courtroom part seems great, but all this other work that you do is a real drag, and I picked the wrong line of work. That was possible, and I got lucky, because I have found that even the stuff that isn't as glamorous as being in court, robed, examining or cross-examining a witness in the witness box, or making submissions to an appellate court, even the stuff that doesn't rise to that level of, of glamour, if I can use that term, um, is enjoyable, because it's all part of the broader challenge and all part of the broader craft. And, uh, and so that I really didn't start to learn about until I got into the, into the line of work itself. Right. So then I know this must be hard to pinpoint just by nature of a litigation practice, but what does a typical day or week or even month look like for you? This is the, the answer that I think most junior lawyers and probably senior lawyers will give you to this question, which is that there's no such thing as a typical day. Uh, if there were, uh, this job would be a lot less interesting than it is. So let me talk about a typical week because those there, you, there are better patterns if you can if you can abstract the level of five workdays at a time. The the practice of litigation is a process of dynamic triage. You are constantly making to do lists and remaking to do lists as correspondence comes in, as things go out the door, as you receive decisions from judges and masters and courts, and as you receive instructions from clients and as you receive responses to your requests for information from opposing counsel and undertakings get answered there are so many people involved in a particular litigation matter at any particular time that you as the, as counsel don't ever have the power to control the entire thing you can control how you respond and when you respond to a particular say a piece of correspondence from the other side asking you for a particular document or to answer a particular undertaking or demanding that you deliver your statement of defense within a certain period of time. I mean, you have you do have some power and more as you become more senior, but you're constantly juggling uh, with other people and passing the ball from one juggler to the next and can't really predict when there's going to be incoming traffic from, from someone who isn't you. And so the skill that, that every junior lawyer needs to develop very quickly 
is how to manage your to-do list, how to triage up and down and decide what needs to get done in what order in order to fulfill the instructions that I've been given by my client, to ensure that I'm providing the support to the senior lawyers that I'm working with, that they are going to require in order to serve the client well. How am I going to ensure that the court is getting what it needs from me, when it needs it from me, and that I'm complying with the rules and so forth. And that becomes easier and more second nature as time goes on. But it's hard at the beginning because everything seems urgent because when you get a letter from opposing counsel, of course, so it's never written, get back to me when you have a moment to, to do so. It's please respond at your earliest convenience. So everything seems very, very tense and dramatic. And that's something that, that you know a lot about and learn over time. So a typical week is a lot of that, figuring out where things belong in my to-do list, what needs to be answered now, what can I put off until tomorrow or next week or next month, and, and then making sure that I have the time in order to do it. In terms of the actual substance of the work, uh, in a typical week, it's unusual if a typical week doesn't involve the following at least one telephone call with an expert witness on a file. So I do, a big part of my practice is, uh, is medical legal work, defending physicians who are sued for medical negligence. So we are constantly speaking to experts in respect of those files whom we've retained to provide us with expert opinions, both so that we can assess the strength of our defense to a particular claim and eventually to testify in court in support of the care that a particular physician who's the defendant in the case has provided. So I'm reading their draft reports, or I'm, I'm reviewing the medical literature so that I don't sound like a complete fool when I speak to them, uh, and ask them questions about the case, and, and I'm reviewing medical records in order to, to have an informed discussion with someone who is truly an expert. It's not just in the medical cases, in commercial cases as well. Working with experts is a huge part of what we do, and so in any given week, it is very rare that I won't have at least one of those telephone calls with, with an expert, and that's a big part of the job. Another big part of the job is reviewing documents. I don't mean document review in the capital D, capital R sense of the term, which typically means the process by which an associate or a junior lawyer and increasingly a contract lawyer, so someone who isn't an associate of a law firm but is retained by a law firm for this purpose, sits through thousands and thousands of documents and decides what's privileged, what's relevant, what isn't, uh, in order to respond to discovery obligations that you have in civil litigation, or to answer undertakings or, or what have you. And that process is not actually a big, has never been a big part of my job. It is part, a big part of some people's jobs. When I say document review, I mean looking at the, the key documents in a case that are relevant, uh, the medical records in a medical negligence case, the accounting records in an accounting case, the corporate organizational charts in a case where, where those are relevant, and figuring out what the story is that we're gonna tell, or at least what my, my view is about the story that we should tell about what happened in a particular set of circumstances in order to persuade the court to rule in our client's favor. I mean, litigation is storytelling and the documents are the raw materials. And, and sometimes that involves transcripts of interviews that have been given or examinations for discovery, but, but a lot of the week is spent working with those raw materials, usually in connection with a particular deliverable, whether it's a, a, a memo or a, a report to a client saying, here's what this case is about, here's what we know so far, here's what our theory is, or whether it's a, a factum for a motion that you're going to bring in court or you're drafting a claim or a defense, usually that orients the review that you're doing of the documents because you have that particular finished product in mind. But swimming around in the material is, is a vast component of the job of any litigator. And then the, the counterpart to that is legal research. If you're working on a case where you have principles of law that are going to need to be developed or that might not point your way and you need to 
navigate some difficult case law that favors the other side. You spend a lot of time reading cases and figuring out what the best ones are going to be the marshal uh, that you can marshal in support of your case. So that's that's a big part of it as well. And then the two last bits that I would that I would fit into a given week, there's usually some amount of drafting. At the very least, you're drafting correspondence. I mean, junior litigators joke that we write letters for a living, and it's not totally inaccurate. Um, writing writing letters to opposing counsel, writing letters to the court. That's how we make the record of what happened in a case, both for our own purposes, so that we can go back and figure out what happened and in what order, and also so that if there's a dispute about something related to the process of litigation, all that correspondence can go into a motion record and be submitted to a judge or a master in order to decide the procedural issue that's in controversy, whether it's a refusals issue or, or some other thing. Uh, and so that's the that's the least sexy kind of drafting that you do the those sorts of back and forth correspondence but there's also drafting of of as i say substantive reports to the client explaining what the case is seeking instructions setting out what your theory is and what your proposed approach to a particular problem or a particular procedural challenge is and then going back and forth with the client usually by email these days to, to confirm those instructions and make sure that you're on the same page and then the most exciting drafting, at least in my view, is pleadings, affidavits, and factums. Pleadings are a statement of claim or a statement of defense, the kind of bookends of the case that tell the story of what the dispute is. They're crucially important. And oftentimes you, you draft them at the beginning and you really realize that they're important when you get to trial or even on appeal. And there's a question of, was this pleaded? Is this, is this actually properly before the court? So that's hugely important and hugely uh, uh, interesting work is to draft those pleadings. And in terms of affidavits, that's that's written evidence. So it's when we put in a written statement that is sworn by a witness on which they will, in most cases, be subject to cross-examination. That is a huge, a hugely important bit of work to do. And that that's oftentimes what orients the, the review of the documents that I described, because there you really are going to write out the story that this particular witness is going to tell as if they were giving testimony live in the witness box. Instead of being examined in chief, they're giving a written statement, a written affidavit on which they're going to be cross-examined. So that's an important and difficult piece of drafting. And then there are factums, which are, are legal arguments that you pre present to the court, which law students know about because you do them for moots and things. And factums, sometimes you're drafting a factum, a 40-page factum in an appeal in the Supreme Court of Canada on some important, difficult jurisprudential issue. Those are, those are fun if you're, if you're like me and you like appellate litigation. Um, and then there are factums about refusals motions and factums seeking to have actions dismissed for delay or, or having, uh, getting permission from the court to file a document after the deadline has passed because you missed the deadline. I mean, there are, there are, uh, are, are much less uh, dramatic and highbrow forms of factum writing that actually take up a lot more time than those Supreme Court factums. Um, but it all requires the same set of skills, which is, again, I come back to it, storytelling and using the law and the facts to, to bring the court onto your side with a written narrative that, that accomplishes what your client needs to accomplish in the litigation. So obviously, I, you know, it took me about a week to give that answer, but in a given week, you do bits of, bits of those things. That's the palette from which you paint in making the, the mess that is my schedule on a given five-day period. And what is your favorite type of matter to work on, and what are your least favorite things about working in litigation? Sure. So, I, I mean, for me, I, I mentioned that I like appeals. I, I will never be able to resist a big, juicy appellate file. I mean, a, a file that involves difficult legal issues where uh, where 
there usually there's been a decision at first instance and you are are working on persuading the court of appeal to reverse that decision or or you're seeking to defend that decision the higher up you get in the in the hierarchy of courts the more abstract sometimes the legal issues become from the facts of the case but fundamentally it's using a fixed record to tell a story and using legal authorities to persuade a court that that story should amount to a particular remedy that that for me is is where the rubber often meets the road and it's a it's a level of of or a type of of work that i've enjoyed and that that has been a big part of my career since i was a law clerk and on the other side of receiving uh, those submissions both written and oral and, and helping judges figure out how to how to handle them and how to work through them in, in crafting their decisions um, so I, i'll always love appeals but but i i when i started my career well, I shouldn't say that. When I came back from my second clerkship, so I, I clerked at the Court of Appeal, then I practiced for a year, then I clerked again at the Supreme Court of Canada, then I came back to practice. When I came back from the from the SCC after my second clerkship, I remember very clearly wanting to be an appellate litigator. I thought appeals are great; they're they're you know difficult, law first, um, uh, challenging uh, uh, briefs. I've been watching them get argued at the Supreme Court for a year. This is what I should do, and this is what I want to do. And I've been very fortunate that appeals have been a big part of my practice ever since. What I undervalued at the beginning and what I now have learned to love as much or more than a difficult appeal is witness work. The, the fulfillment that you get as a litigator from having a witness across the table from you in an out-of-court uh, examination or in the witness box if you're examining them in court and getting their evidence, particularly if you're getting evidence that helps your case, that level of fulfillment beats anything else that we do as lawyers. And the fun of a contested hearing with live witnesses far outstrips the, the fun of an appeal hearing. And I, and I love appeals. And I'm fortunate that I've gotten to do a lot of them. And, and, uh, and, and it's exhilarating to be in front of nine judges at the Supreme Court of Canada and making a legal argument. But, but that's over after an hour at the most. If you're, if you're a party and you get the whole hour for yourself for the submissions, you're, you're out there for an hour. Being in a witness examination that's five or six hours, doing a trial that can take weeks or even months, and working across the table from good counsel on the other side, and dealing with witnesses whom you can't control because they're human beings and, and they do unpredictable things. I mean, there's a dynamism and an energy to that that, that is totally intoxicating. And if, if, if I had known that before I did it, which of course I couldn't have, um, I wouldn't have been so quick to say appeals are what I want to do. Really, I'm, I'm in the unfortunate position of not being really able to choose between these things. And so I just try to do as much of all of it as I, as I possibly can. You, you asked me also what my, what my least favorite stuff about, about litigation is. And I alluded to this earlier when I was talking about having been a, a performer, a, an act, a high school you know, thespian. I, I have a lot of difficulty with overacting and overperformance from, uh, from lawyers, which you see a lot of. And I'm certainly guilty of it from time to time. And I will continue to be guilty of it from time to time. And I have colleagues who I know are guilty of it from time to time. We all do it. But, but there are a few things that get under my skin, not in a good way, but just make me roll my eyes and think this can't possibly be effective. And the sort of overheated fake bravado that, that is, is sometimes a, a, a tempting vice for litigators. I mean, you, you, you mentioned your own experience in opera. We are not characters in an opera, and acting that way, particularly in front of a judge or an arbitrator, I just don't think is effective. And it, it's 
it's that kind of, of hyperventilation that, that you sometimes get from opposing counsel that is the thing that's most likely to ruin my afternoon just because it just it just it just annoys me and but ultimately and, and and every lawyer needs to learn to deal with this difficult opposing counsel difficult clients frankly difficult sometimes difficult colleagues and difficult co-counsel on on different cases um but but when you get one of those letters and and or you, you're in court with someone who's over the top like that it can really bother you and or at least it does me and I am just have to reassure myself knowing that ultimately I don't have to persuade opposing counsel. They, they're doing their job and they're doing it the way that they think is best. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to play to the judge and not to them and, and trust that I can serve my client's interests by being, by, by using the, the, what I'm getting from the other side as a reminder to be more understated because that's what I think more often than not works. The pandemic has transformed litigation, I think, arguably the most out of all the practice areas. Um, There was a video a while ago making its rounds on Twitter. It went viral of a lawyer who accidentally had his face filter on, and he made his appearance in virtual court as a cat. I'm prepared to go forward, Judge. I'm prepared to go forward. It's me. I'm not a cat. Yes. I'm not a cat. Yes. (laughs) Um, How did you find the transition into virtual hearings? Well, fortunately, I don't have whatever software that lawyer has that would, that could create a cat filter. And if I did, I would delete it from my computer immediately. Um, I have I have actually found the transition to be relatively seamless. I I accidentally prepared for this 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 whole pandemic situation better than some people did because I had transitioned to a mostly paperless practice before the pandemic hit. So on March the thirteenth or whatever it was that we all were sent home and told you might not come in next week. It was Friday the 13th. That's hard to forget. Um, I, 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 I grabbed my computer, I, my laptop, I grabbed my iPad and I went home and everything was, was there with me, you know, on the, on our, our firm's secure system or, or, you know, it was, or in my email or whatever. Um, and so that was a relatively easy transition. And my assistant and I, I'm very fortunate to have a phenomenal assistant and, and she and I, had uh, had long since developed good ways of working together with my not being in the office because I was actually always a person who, particularly if I was doing drafting, like if I'm if I'm writing a factum or something, I'll often stay home and would have stayed home just to be in my own space and where it would be quieter than in the office with people going, milling about and phones ringing and that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, she and I had a good way of working together despite not being physically in the same place. So that transition was relatively straightforward. And then doing the actual advocacy stuff, like discoveries and cross-examinations and hearings remotely, um, I, I found that that's been a relatively straightforward transition, in part because everyone was figuring out how to do it for the first time at the same time. And nobody was an expert because there was nothing yet to be an expert in. We were making this up as we all went along. So you cut each other some slack. It's not like in court where... There's a, even in court, by the way, if something goes wrong, someone knocks over a water glass. It's not like the whole thing's time stops and the judge gets mad. Like it's it's a human profession and people behave like normal human beings. But particularly where people have kids that are coming into the room or dogs barking or whatever, the vast majority of lawyers and judges that I've that I've encountered and that I've heard about have been very good about about moving into this in a way where we're all figuring it out 
together. And we've also learned, I think, that the things that we thought would be difficult to do remotely, like how can you examine someone for discovery if you're not sitting across the table from them watching the beads of sweat form on their forehead as you pursue the, the line of questioning they really don't want you to pursue? Well, it turns out that you can still see the bead of sweat forming on their forehead through Zoom. And if anything, you know, having the witness in a comfortable surrounding can actually work to your advantage. What we, you know, as lawyers, we have to be versatile and we have to use the scenarios that we are in, the situations that we're in, in order to accomplish the advocacy outcomes that we want. So you change the circumstances, you change your own strategy, but it's still the same fundamental skill set that you're using. And so, you know, I haven't found this to be a particularly jarring transition, but again, maybe that's because I was paperless before. Maybe it's because I'm the generation that has been digital first since we started practicing. I don't know. And, but I found that, you know, even with much more senior counsel, you know, once they, once they figure out how the, the Zoom works, which we all did about a year ago, and once you get the tech set up right, which everybody I think has now, and as long as you have, you know, the basic human indulgence from the other side, not to be cross if a dog barks or a child needs attention or you need to take a break because of whatever, these things have been going relatively smoothly. I'll also, I'll also cop to the fact that I am extremely lucky to have a law firm that has staff who have been incredibly adaptable uh, in these circumstances and who have supported us doing virtual hearings um, in a way that that we are extremely extremely fortunate to have. So when I you know when I've done an appeal, for example, I have a room set up, a boardroom in our office where I have a podium that I can stand at, like I was standing at a podium at at in court. Because that, again, for me is an important part of a sort of tactile part of the experience that it was important for me to recreate. And I've got a big screen with the Zoom, uh, the Zoom gallery or whatever on it, and, or with the judge on speaker view. So I'm looking at the judge, and I've got a nice stable webcam on a tripod between my eye line and the screen, so that the judge thinks I'm looking right at them because I am. And I've got a stable internet connection that's wired. I mean, these are things that I can take for granted because I'm a lawyer at a big firm in downtown Toronto which lawyers who practice in smaller communities who are sole practitioners don't have. Um, and I think that, again, is where the, that basic humanity comes into it, that, that I think every lawyer has, has figured out how to do this with varying degrees of, of difficulty, but everybody understands that we're all, we're all flying a bit without a script here, and we all are figuring out, out how, to, how to manage this as we go along, and, and people are being respectful of that in one another. Um, yeah, I mean... I think one of the big questions that's sort of hanging over us is whether virtual hearings and certain sort of pandemic practices will stick around even after the pandemic. Um, do you personally have any practices that you've started because of the pandemic that you think you'll hold on to afterwards? I think the days of, I mean, it used to be that if you wanted to examine a witness for discovery and they didn't live in, say, Toronto, even if all the all the lawyers were Toronto lawyers, if the witness was in Thunder Bay, there was an argument potentially or a possibility that you would go to Thunder Bay and do the discovery there. I think that's going to be exceptionally rare going forward. I think with trials, the days of needing to schedule trials so that some particular expert, world expert, who's being called as a witness by one party or the other, who lives in some foreign country, in order to to you know figuring out how long it's going to take them to fly to Toronto so they can physically be in court and when will their schedule allow that those days are I think behind us because we now know that you can get the evidence from those witnesses even if they're on the other side of the world by video conference and it's just as good or better 
than, than doing trials in person, at least in respect of particular sort of one witness at a time. I don't think we're ever, well, I hope we won't go to an entirely virtual platform for doing all civil litigation. I think that certainly my generation of lawyers and probably the one that will follow me will are, are sufficiently committed to and connected to the courtroom. And, and there's enough of that experience of being in the courtroom physically that, that we're not going to be willing to let go of. But I think that overcoming some of the inconveniences or the scheduling hurdles or or the logistical difficulties that are associated with attending court in person, to the extent we can overcome those using technology, the resistance to that is going to be very hard to justify because judges have now all figured out how to do stuff virtually. And, uh, and there are now numerous reported decisions uh, from the Ontario Superior Court of Justice and other courts across the country that express a judicial willingness to move matters forward expeditiously, efficiently, in a cost-effective way using technology. So, the, you know, I, back in, in, I remember in, in April of last year, I was supposed to do cross-examinations and discoveries in two different matters. And in both matters, opposing counsel insisted that the discoveries or the cross-examinations happen in person. They weren't prepared to proceed by video conference. And as the pandemic went on, one of them, the, the cross-examinations ended up happening virtually because there was just no way they were going to happen otherwise, and we were on a timetable, and, and so we did them virtually, and they worked, and everyone was happy. The discoveries actually, the other side insisted that they be in person. I'm still not totally sure why, but we actually attended a court reporter's office in August of last year and did in-person discoveries. I think that if, if, if we hadn't been able to agree, and the public health situation in August was such that this wasn't a, a terribly high-risk thing for us to do, I think if that were to happen now with the numbers where they are for COVID, and if I had said we're not attending in person, and if I have to go to a judge or a master and get an order saying that we're going to do these by video conference, that's what I'll do. I think it's very unlikely a court would say, no, you must do this in person. I think that that line of argument is, is obsolete. So I think there will be a lot of things that will continue to be done virtually, but I think that we all have a strong enough preference and we all have an aesthetic commitment to being courtroom lawyers and being in a courtroom. That, uh, that as soon as we can be back in court, physically in court, we will want to be and we will try to be to the extent we can be. I understand that your focus, and you've touched on this briefly, is sort of on commercial disputes, public law, and appeals very generally. So how did that shape into an expertise in emergency law and co-authoring an entire book on Canadian emergency law? Huh. Fair. Uh, so, I mean, it's a good question. I hesitate to call myself an expert, um, but none of us were experts in this, and now all of us are, right? This is a, an area of law that, that was always out there. The statutes were on the books, but we've all had to become familiar with them in a way that, that we didn't expect to because of the pandemic. I think for me, it's my public law background primarily, the, the public law aspect of my practice that has lent itself to doing emergency law work. Because ultimately, emergency law is public law. These are statutes, and the powers that are exercised in order to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic are powers, are statutory powers. And so as, whenever you're dealing with the exercise of statutory powers and figuring out what is legitimate, what isn't legitimate, what can you do, how do you interpret a particular instrument, statutory instrument, or regulatory instrument, these are public law questions. And so someone who is a public law uh, lawyer, like I have been in my, in my career, and I've been lucky to have a lot of public law to sink my teeth into, but that prepared me to do that kind of work. And so I was called upon by, you know, senior people in my firm and by clients to, to advise on emergency law issues, because it was, it was a, an adjunct to the, the administrative and public law work that I was doing anyway. 
And so, you know, the, the three categories of issues that arise that are public law issues in the context of emergency law are administrative law issues. You know, the, did, did the government of Ontario have the power to make the order that they made under the legislation pursuant to which they purported to make the order? That's a basic administrative law question that, that goes to the extent of a government's statutory authority and involves questions of statutory interpretation. The second category of public law issue that arises in emergency law are division of powers issues. Uh, they don't arise so often as in emergency law because of the emergency branch of the peace, order, and good government power, which Canadian law students learn about in, in 1L, which allows the federal government to temporarily, or excuse me, parliament, to, le to legislate temporarily in areas of provincial jurisdiction, which is where the Emergencies Act comes from and a lot of the orders that have been made under the Quarantine Act are, are justified under that head of power. And then there are the provincial powers over health, which obviously are, are front and center, as well as matters of a local nature and, and property and civil rights, which are, are where a lot of the, the local and municipal orders that we've seen in response to COVID-19 come from. So there's the division of powers and federalism set of questions, which is another public law question about emergency law. And then the third big set of questions are constitutional issues in the in the in the in the freedom uh, rights and freedom sense. So you know, are these orders that have been made by the government compliant with the charter? Are are interprovincial uh, border restrictions or move that restrict the ability to go from one province to another unjustified infringements of the mobility rights in Section Six? Those sorts of questions arise as well in the emergency law context. And so, because I, I before COVID nineteen had done charter cases, I had done division of powers work, and I had done administrative law work, sort of the, the right recipe to come into this, this, er, this not new area of law, but newly important and urgent area of the law, and really dig into it and do some, some thinking and writing about it. And, and, and the book itself came out of, of advice that we had been giving clients, where we were, we, my co-author Eric Block and I were so constantly uh, being asked questions about these emergency powers that different governments across the country were exercising in a way that affected our clients' interests, that we just spent a lot of time sitting, sifting through the law in this area. And we thought, you know, you know, this is something that we should be writing about. And that is where the book came from. And that brings us to the end of part one. If you want to learn more about emergency powers and how they've been used both in the past and in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic, listen to part two of my conversation with Adam. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.